up, Redemption? How you doing? John Hendricks here, as always, for a brand new episode of your favorite podcast. This is The Threshing Floor, and we're going to be talking some redemption with a brand new guest. We've got Josh Potratz coming on, and before we get into that, we're going to be going over some recent news. You know how we like to do it here at the podcast. So we're going to be breaking that down, giving you all that information, and then we're going to have the recorded conversation with Josh on the back end of this. It's a lot of good information, continuing the conversation about how to fix maybe the aggressive play style of territory class, all that from that strong and healthy conversation that happened in Discord a few days ago. So your favorite podcast, up to the minute, breaking with taking your thoughts and making a podcast out of it. So hopefully you enjoy the new guest, enjoy this, and we'll get right into it. Thanks for being here. All right, guys, what's up? John Hendricks here, as always, for a brand new episode of the Threshing Floor Podcast. Go ahead and tell the truth. Me calling it your favorite podcast, I know you like that. Because just be honest with yourself. Go ahead. It's okay to admit it. You know, it's it's the holidays. People are opening up. You know, they've got warm feelings. It's okay to admit it that the Threshing Floor is your favorite podcast. I know it's mine. I'm sure you guys probably wish that it would... <laughs> It would make regular episodes again, but I'm trying to get what I can out when I can. So this is going to be a bit of an off-scheduled release, hopefully dropping over the weekend after I was able to record with Josh on Friday evening. So I'm going to go ahead and hit some recent news, and then we'll get right into the conversation that I've got recorded with Josh. So we'll hit Redemption with Jaden this week, had a Thanksgiving-themed video where he played a Thanksgiving themed deck against Tyler Stevens, and he was also playing a Thanksgiving themed deck. The video is titled Give Thanks and also Redemption Cards. So make sure you guys go and check that out. And Tyler also, you know, from YouTube fame, has his own channel, Tyler Talks. And on that channel, he his most recent works is Is Nativity the Best Deck in Format? And I'm going to go ahead and give it a shout out here, even though it's been out for a few days. It came out after we released the last podcast episode, but the reason I'm shouting it out is because if you don't understand how nativity works or people talk about hyper-aggressive decks, that will give you an idea of what we're talking about looking at that video. So you can go and check that out. Our other friend on YouTube is Rob M Studios, and he has a deck that is featuring the Gospel Angels and Demons Your Turn Games deck, uh, contender deck. And so you can go and check that out. I know that my son has played the contender deck and has really liked it. I guess, and I, I am making an assumption, I have not watched Rob's video here. I apologize, Rob. I'm going to keep it honest with you. 100. I have not watched it. So he could be profiling the challenger deck version versus the contender deck. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but anyway, there is a contender deck version that I am aware of, and my son really enjoys playing that deck. So this is either that deck or a more mid-level version of that deck. But you can go and check that out and see kind of the way that contender decks are crafted um, or challenger decks, what have you. And then go look at your turn games and see the deck and go ahead and buy that thing while it's on sale for you know the Black Friday sale that's going on. 
I'm sorry, John. I'm sorry. I know you sponsor the podcast, but I just got to shout out good deals when they're, when they're there. So it is what it is, I guess. <laughs> um, Land of Redemption with our friend Chad heading that up now has an article by Jason. Um, I, I would, I, I don't want to mess up your last name. So Jason R we'll say that I would assume it's like Richie, but, uh, I'm not sure in my Southern dialect here, but he has an article that came out talking about kind of the establishment or the, the idea for scrolls only format, which was just heralded at the scroll around the block tournament hosted in New York by our friend Rob M. But this is called the comeback of classic cards scrolls only by Jason R. And you can go and read that and kind of see the thought process behind uh, how scrolls only, you know, got a little bit of a foothold there and led to that tournament in New York. Also, Lackey Grand Prix number six. The deadline to sign up for this bad boy is today, assuming that I get this out on Saturday. It is today. So listen to this podcast, fall in love with redemption all over again, and then go sign your butt up for the Grand Prix. This is number six. So you're going to have a little bit more time around the holidays sitting around. Maybe, maybe not. Depends on who you are. <laughs> but if you do have some time, jump in the Grand Prix. Enjoy yourself playing game. It's one, one match a week. So you can handle that. Also, we'll go ahead and let you know that Mr. Classic or the Classic Invitational, it does have dates. We found that out on the podcast with Chris Fashman a couple of weeks ago. The dates for the Classic Invitational is going to be March 17th and 18th at Meridian Baptist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. And also at Knoxville, Tennessee, go ahead and mark your calendar, circle it now, because the hype train is going to be in full force this year, again, because we've already found out we're going to have a new set at Nationals and kind of get back to that set releasing at Nationals thing that I know Tyler likes. And they've got the idea for it and all, and they've just got to do the play testing and then Hopefully they can get all of that done in time to have it released at Nationals without any issues. But that's going to be a really cool time to see what the next set holds. Um, and also as we find out what the Phase 2 GOC meta ends up at Nationals, that's going to be also in Knoxville, Tennessee, like I said, at Meridian Baptist Church, July 27th through 29th. So mark your calendars. Your butt better be there. You better be there with some friends. If you are playing Redemption, and you have not been to Nationals, I'm telling you, it will make it, it will change your entire uh, mind frame about the game of Redemption because it feels like we're a, a, a very small community and we're kind of in different pockets uh, of the country. And then when people get together for Nationals, it's just such a great atmosphere, such a cool hangout. Uh, I got to meet Rob this past Nationals. It was fantastic. So just... Allow yourself to buy into the whole hype of going to a national tournament. It's awesome. Um, and Knoxville is kind of centrally located for a lot of people. You know, it's not as difficult to get to as Texas was. So if you are if you are able to make it, make it a priority. Let's see you there. Let's push the numbers back up. Let's have a great time. I also, I guess, 
kind of went out of order here. Uh, I forgot to mention that the Zoom Discord Invitational Series 8 is now underway. Week 1 pairings are getting ready to wrap up. So if you are playing in the Zoom Discord Invitational, which is another way to play in an unofficial tournament, um, just to keep you you know, able to develop decks and work on tweaking those against other players that maybe you don't get to play all the time. But if you're playing in that, make sure you get your games in. And that'll bring me to two announcements of my own, one that I've been pushing for a while now, even though it hasn't been pushed very much since I haven't had a lot of episodes come out. But the Plus One Initiative, it is still ongoing. We will announce prizes at some point, but we know that the winners will be announced at the Mr. Classic Invitational March 17th and 18th. Sometime that weekend, we will announce the winners for the Plus One Initiative. And this is all for you to take the current momentum that the game of redemption has and the effort that's going in to refine the game and make it as presentable aesthetically and functionally to new players and using that momentum to bring a uh, branch out and, you know, invite a new player to your play group, start a play group, things like that, just to spread the word, use this as an evangelism tool, use it as a way to just, you know, socially engage with people that share your beliefs um, and, all kinds of cool relationships can develop from, you know, just any type of tabletop gaming, just where you're sitting there face to face with someone and you can find out about them and what their situation is and whatnot. There's a lot of cool conversations that happen just because you're using the the medium of a game to sit down at the table with someone. So make sure you are taking advantage of that and maybe win some cool prizes on the back end. But the other thing is the Christmas card swap. I had every intention of not doing that this year because I did it the first year and then I did it the second year and I was expecting the numbers to jump up in year two and they really didn't do that. So I, I guess, maybe considered it not as successful as I wanted it to be. But it turns out that the people that did it, or a lot of them, seem to enjoy it. I've had several people reach out and ask me about if I'm doing it. And I was not going to, but I didn't want to come out and just say it that way. So I just kind of let it sit uh, while I thought about it. And so I'm deciding to actually go ahead and go forward with doing it again so that the ones that are participating are able to enjoy it, even if it's just a small number. I guess that's one of those things where we, a lot of times we just let our minds be trapped by whether numbers say that something is successful or not. But we will be doing the Christmas card swap. We are going to do the deadline to sign up is going to be December 14th. And then deadline to mail your cards off will be December 19th. I will strongly caution you. I am leaving there. There's, what is that, five days in there for you to uh, have. It, once you find out who your person is, if you want to make the gift unique and special to that person. Because I did that last year with Tyler. You can ask him about that or, or search on Discord and find the picture of the card uh, custom card layout that I made for him. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. And I wanted to do something unique since he's an elder and I assume he's got every card in the game. Uh, I just wanted to do something that was memorable. But I let it kind of sneak up to where I had to send it like next day air just to get it there before Christmas. But I don't want everyone else to be experiencing those situations. So I'm telling you now, Deadline to sign up is the 14th, and then you have until the 19th. So you've got like the five days there after you find out. But you can kind of already have, 
an idea of what you're going to give away or or whatnot, kind of have it ready to where when you get that name, you're ready to basically just, you know, tie that gift together and send it off. Don't be completely caught off guard and find out a name and not have anything worked up towards it or having devoted any thought to it so that you don't get caught off guard like I did last year. But with that, that is all of the current news and content that I have that I wanted to go over with you guys. We don't have any spoilers or anything right now, so uh, pretty quick to burn through that uh, bit of news from the community, and we'll get right into the conversation. We've got almost two hours of conversation, or maybe a little over, with Josh, so it's a big, meaty episode, but definitely some good conversation there. He's, he's one of those minds in the game that really successful at nationals the last couple of years, but he's been a good competitive player, top, top 10 ish of active players for quite a few years now. And now he's into that like top two or three conversation in active players now. So he's a mind that maybe you guys find as interesting as I do. And I'm glad to finally have him on the podcast, but We'll get right into the conversation, and then you can you can see how he sees the game, what his current outlook is on the game, and the current game state, and what he would do if he put on the elder hat and had the power to change the game. So we'll get right into it. Here you go. All right, so we are here with Josh. Um, Josh, why don't you go ahead and settle the record, because... I'm pretty sure that I would say it wrong if I said your last name, and I'm pretty sure Jay says it wrong to me all the time. So how do you say your mm-hmm. name officially? Potrats. Potrats. Okay. Yep. You can't really mess it up if you go in with a strong po at the start. Everyone wants to add an extra R in there, but there there is only one. Okay. So fair enough. Well, welcome to the podcast. Glad to finally have you on. And we are going to be talking about kind of a conversation that was sparked up on Discord recently that has also been previously on Discord. It's a conversation that just keeps evolving and changing, um, gets more traction just about every time we have a tournament. It seems like there's somebody walking away like, yep, something needs to be done about territory class cards or potentially imbalanced gameplay. So you are someone that has done very well in the competitive space. So you have, I guess learn to ebb and flow within that very well to have pretty good finishes at nationals at least the past two years had a chance to potentially win back-to-back this year so what are your views as a top-level player on the current state of competitive redemption yeah so I think the competitive scene is it's definitely very interesting still I know there's some people that think that we're kind of that it's like there's just combo decks it's coin flip it's coin toss nothing matters. Um, I think there definitely is still a lot of skill at play, both in deck building and in piloting. Um, But I do think there are some issues that we're probably going to hit on more in this podcast uh, about ways that the game and the competitive scene specifically could probably be improved. So breaking that that down a little bit uh, and getting into more of those specifics, last year, um, and when I say last year, I guess I'm meaning the 2021 Nationals, not the one that we just came through, um, but the one in Texas, Canyon Lake, Texas, where you, I think about a month before, you were like, okay, maybe I can you know, work up a deck that can take on Love at First Sight and that combo, and you did that, and you ended up going on to win Nationals. So from that point, 
that was kind of the first step towards this super hyper aggressive because we were coming off of the throne, you know, protect Isaiah band and then rotation mm-hmm. pushed us forward. So how would you say that where the game is currently now compares to back in 2021 and then the season that we just had in 2022, are we working towards a better and more healthy game state where there's more viable decks or are we kind of in that to where you have to play some version of aggressive uh, tempo paced decks? I think the game is definitely um, game is definitely speeding up. So as far as is there balance between decks that want to play aggressively or decks that want to play slowly? Do you have the freedom to um, give up early speed to favor long-term inevitability? That On that axis, I think we are trending, we are continuing to trend toward you do have to play, like the, the minimum speed barrier to be a competitive deck is continuing to increase. As far as the general variety, though, of available competitive decks to play. Um, That one's harder to call. Um, Every nationals, or at least most nationals that I've been a part of, it always feels like going into nationals, it's, there's a bunch of decks that are a toss up between, Oh, is, is this tier one? Is this tier two? Is this competitive? Is this not competitive? Usually there's one or two things that are like, yep, this is definitely a tier one deck and things that are like the deck to beat, which is going to be like love at first sight in 2021. But um, then after nationals, I usually feel like it's like, oh, obviously it was like this deck, this deck, and this deck that were the true competitive decks. But that usually doesn't become clear until after Nationals, at least to me and the people that I talk to. So I think there's definitely still a solid amount of variety. Um, Whether that's going up or down is hard to say. I don't think it's really going down. Um, I do think it is actually going up slightly. I think that there's, um, with GOC, there was definitely... A, a power level increase, but there also were a wide variety of things that got parallel. they got their power levels increased and that are still viable. Let me ask you this to just touch on love at first sight, not winning nationals and then circus, not winning nationals this past year, 2022 where Jaden won. Do you think that it, it seems like there's, there's kind of the counter argument to, well, those decks aren't overpowered because look, they didn't win. But that's also because, I mean, Jaden's probably one of the top two or three players in the game right now active. And then you as well are in that conversation, and you won with a hard counter deck for Love at First Sight. Um, And you were able to balance that out to be competitive against enough other decks to win nationals. But that still has you playing either the hyper-aggressive combo deck or a, a counter for it in the Love at First Sight year. And then last year... Jaden won with more of a, a, I guess we just call it a balanced deck, like a, a, mm-hmm. a mid-tempo deck. But do you think the argument is that those decks aren't overpowered because they didn't win? Do you think there's validity to that argument? Or is it, no, those decks are still stronger than they should be allowed within the rules of the game and create an unhealthy game state? So to answer your question, the, the easiest question first of, do I believe that just because a deck did not win nationals, means it's not overpowered i i would not say yes to that so i think a deck can definitely be um, not only overpowered but even overpowered to the point that um, something about the game should be changed in response whether that be a rule change or a ban or whatever um, even if it never wins the nationals and 
that's due to a concept called format warping that I think is a really good concept for competitive any competitive card game player to be familiar with. And I'll, I'm sure a lot of people listening already are, but I'll just give a brief, a brief description for those that aren't. Format warping refers to the effect that a known spooky overpowered whatever deck has on a game state so or on a on a meta so for example in 2021 love at first sight existing meant that for decks that weren't that deck to have a chance at winning nationals they had to run a huge amount of counters to that specific deck because if they didn't they would automatically lose to it now those decks are having to dedicate a bunch of slots to beating this uh, this spooky X-Factor deck. And in the case in 2021, there were barely enough cards in the game that I was able to make a deck that that pulled it off. Like there, I was pretty much running just about every card that you could reasonably fit into a deck um, that would do something meaningful in pregame or turn one to stop the up for sight combo. Um, but let's say that, for example, there were twice as many available counters. And I was actually able to, um, not only would, would could I make the mono green deck that I did that ran all of them and was locked into running mono green because of it, let's say that there were enough counters that everybody in, no matter what deck they were running, could run a sufficient amount of counters that Love at First Sight uh, was not going to win anything ever because it was just going to get hard counted every game. That would probably have resulted in Jeremy not running it and other people not running it. And you could e- even end up in an extreme scenario in a meta where everybody is running counters in their deck to a deck that nobody is playing. But they're forced to do that because if anyone stops running those counters or if enough people stop running those counters, then suddenly that deck becomes overpowered again. And it's just not really a healthy format. You don't want to be forcing um, players to tech for a certain deck that hard um, and there can be lasting effects on a meta, even for a deck that's not played, let alone a deck that is played, but barely manages to not win. Okay. So the territory war, if I say that, I assume that you probably know what I mean, but it's the mm-hmm. checking of the game state to see this is working. My Obed is turned off right now. Your golden calf's turned off, just basically turning everything into a light switch. Is it on or is it off? And winning that to control the board state to then push the tempo in your favor for a game. How important do you think winning that or how vital is winning the territory war to winning the game overall? And then especially with like Chad has been pushing this salty deck to where you're straight to salty. And I know that it's a a good hard counter and then you can put other counters with it, but that's limiting yourself in playing light or you know, little or no territory class cards. So do you think that's a viable strategy? And then also how, how important is it winning that territory to winning the game? So do I think winning the territory war is vital? Yes. Um, I do. I think that salty decks illustrate that winning the ter- committing to winning the territory war isn't, is less important than people think it is. No, because I consider salty decks too salty itself to be a territory war card um preventing both players from playing stuff in territory is participating in the territory war um and 
I think running decks that try to um, running cards that try to lock both players out of playing territory cards that do things other than stop the opponent from playing territory cards is definitely a viable way to fight the territory war, but it is still fighting the territory war. Fair enough. So point blank, no beating around the bush. Do you think the game now is at a point to where something needs to happen? There needs to be some change, whether that's in the form of new cards, and we can break these down and talk about these individually, but new cards, new rule set, some some type of change. Do you think there needs to be an outside change now to change the current trend of the game state and to make it more healthy? I would say that I do. I definitely think that there are um, a few changes, some more extreme than others, um, that I believe would have a significant positive effect on the, on the, the meta. Um, if nationals were to happen tomorrow, um, I would expect that there would be a higher percentage of combo decks, specifically probably nativity focused or otherwise, either all in combo decks or just hard all in speed decks of all variety that would be a larger portion of the meta than I would like to see. And I think there's some simple, there's a few simple changes that I think could easily curb that back. And then I think there's also a few long-term broader changes that I think would um, do a lot of good in the future, not just in this current meta. One of the things that I think a lot of people say, and you guys had a really good conversation going on discord the other night and well, I guess the other day and it trended toward the night. It was a long conversation uh, it took me a while to go back and try to catch up, but I did, um, and it was a great conversation, so we'll get into some of that, but there's a, there's always one section of people, and it, it's, I, I hate to say it, but I feel like it's almost, to me, it's one of those things I hear, and then I don't want to hear anymore because I've heard it so much. Do you think that printing new cards, um, do you think, like, everybody's always like, there might be something in the next set that fixes this problem, and I feel like we've heard that for, like, three years now, and... Something comes out, oh, yeah. but as much as it helps stop, like we got undesirables, for an example, undesirables. Okay. That should be a counter to, you know, something like they, they attack you, you give them this. First of all, it gets negated a lot, but even if it doesn't, a, it, it allows that card to then be used for the combo type player to put that in their deck, build around it to where even if I give up that first rescue because I'm playing a lackluster defense so I can combo off. I can give you that, and now, essentially, that helps me in the tempo to make sure that I'm able to still outpace you, because, sure, I'll let you have your Son of God, and I'll let you have your Second Coming. Now you get Undesirables as a freebie. Okay, you've got three, and you're skipping a battle phase, and by then, I've basically gained control of the game, and I've won the game. But it seems like, as much as we wait for those counters and those things that curb the deck, there's things that come out that make it even better. So, how do you feel when people say, the next set might contain things. And do you think that's a viable thing at this point? Or do you think, are you, I don't want to ask, are you kind of, you know, in my line of thinking, but do you think that cards can be printed in the next set that would fix this to where there doesn't need to be like rule changes or things like that? That's a good question. So um, I probably not quite as jaded as you. I still, I'm definitely always excited for um, how new cards will um, not only make existing archetypes more powerful, but also how new cards could potentially make existing strategies weaker. I actually think I'm probably more excited usually to see 
cards that make current strategies weaker. So like Salty, I, I was very excited when I saw Salty spoiled. And regardless of how um, large of a place in the meta, Salty decks find. I think we're still the meta still has a lot of refining to do. I, I'm hopeful that salt, some Salty decks will find a, a good home. Um, but e- even if they didn't, even if Salty never saw competitive play, um, I think it's an awesome card to be in the game um, because it, it opens up a lot of deck design space um, and allows you to fight the territory war, kind of how I mentioned earlier. You're still fighting the territory war, but you're fighting it in a new way. Um, so I definitely think that designing cards to help curb um, overpowered archetypes is healthy for the game. And I think it's I think it's not as healthy for the game. I think it's a critical part of card game design. And I'm glad that um, to see that it's being done in Redemption. Um, however, I think that um, where uh, where you might be feeling some of this, I think where some where we would agree is that some people rely on that too heavily. Um, I don't think that every problem in the game, or even really any problem in the game, any huge problem, can be solved purely through printing new cards that make it worse. Um, especially because it's hard to make cards that beat an existing strategy without making the new strategy that uses those cards the new top dog. You, you kind of just replace one overpowered deck with a new one. Not always, but it's very it's a fine line to walk when you're uh, designing cards. So I think there is definitely room to discuss um, solutions other than simply printing new cards that solve the problem. Fair enough. I will say that I want to go on record to say that I am super excited when new cards come out. It's not that I have any trepidation about new sets. It's just I feel like we've we've gotten so much of this momentum towards aggressive decks having you know their their fun with the field and being the top deck to where like. I just don't feel like, like you, a, a single card or, or a group of cards coming out as counters are going to be the end-all, be-all solution. I think that it could be part of a bigger overall solution to the issue, but I think there's something else that has to be that. And I just hear a lot of people say, wait till the next set, wait till the next set, almost like they're expecting the card designers to bail us out of this versus us you know, getting creative with deck building and building counters to certain things and, you know, testing out other strategies to make them more viable. How can we make a strategy that's not top level, be top level using the resources that we have in a creative way, maybe that we haven't thought of before. So that's where that angst, I guess, comes from for me. Yep. No, that makes sense. So if, if you don't think cards are going to be the, the, the solution that gets printed, what do you think is the best path forward for a healthy and balanced game state like do you want to see like the ban hammer just dropped on a bunch of stuff or what what is your approach to if you were if you were an elder and you were tasked with cleaning up the game state and making it more balanced and refined for both new players and competitive players what would be your path to do that yeah that's a great question so I'm glad we got to this because I think this is what we this is kind of um, continuing the conversation that you were watching on Discord the other night. Um, I know there's a lot of solutions going around right now, um, and I think that there are some of them that are better than others. And specifically, kind of as we've alluded to earlier in this podcast, um, there there's what feels to me to be a lack of interaction in the early game that's leading to a lot of why certain decks are oppressive. So 
when you go first um, and you draw a billion cards and you, you dump all your counters down, that's a very, very strong way to uh, win a game because anything that you can lay down on the first turn going first, you know that you can do broadly unopposed. Yes, the opponent can play dominance. They can use star abilities. We have seen an increase in interactivity uh, in the early game from star abilities and from soul abilities. So that new cards have, have helped. Um, however, those um, new stars and souls can also be used by the person going first to set up their own stuff. So it, it kind of, it almost balances each other out because both the person going first and the person and the, the victim going second um, can use these cards to accelerate themselves. So I think that a lot of the solutions being looked at right now are tackling this purely as a speed problem. So um, I'll give an example of a couple of those, like the, the Schaefer solution, I believe is one that's been talked about a lot. Um, I believe that's uh, limiting territory class enhancements to one territory class enhancement uh, per turn count. So turn one, you can play one, turn two, you can play two, et cetera. Um, and then there's even more stronger uh, limitations that I, I kind of refer to as the chokehold solution, where you're just hard limited at one per turn or one per phase, one in prep and one in discard. Um, and while I think that those technically could be a positive on the current meta, they like they would probably move the meta in a better direction um, than it is right now. I don't kn even know if they would for sure. I can see pluses and minuses to it. However, I think that that um, has a lot more negative repercussions for the game long term, and it's definitely the most band-aid um, of solutions that's out there. And I would much rather than limit the amount of actions that players can take, I would rather find a way to make uh, the game more interactive, specifically by limiting how many actions a player can take before their opponent gets to take actions. We all like the battle phase. Like everybody wa wants to make the battle phase longer, make the battle phase more central. And I think that's because fundamentally the battle phase is about players taking actions back and forth. Both players get to participate. People like taking, people like playing cards. Um, I know one of my friends uh, likes the game um, because relative to other card games because you can take so many actions in one turn. It's, it doesn't take forever to get everything set up. You don't spend the first five turns just playing a land and maybe playing one card. You get to actually do stuff. And I think that's a really cool, unique aspect that contributes to the, the overall redemption feel. Um, and the solutions that I would want to look at are ones that find ways to promote that um, in, the early, in the early turns. And... Um, Oh, for, that's, I'm rambling for a while. What do you think about that? I'll, I'll explain the other solutions in a second. But what do you think about the the um, the speed limiting solutions like the chokehold solution, the shaver solution, before I move on to the others? I think personally that when, when Jared was on, he did a really good job of explaining, even if you aren't aware of terminology with other card games and things, because I'm primarily like I've dabbled with Yu-Gi-Oh a little bit. My kid plays Pokemon some. And then redemption. So redemption is definitely where I have most of my experience, my short lived experience. So I'm not 
I don't have a wealth of knowledge about other card games and how the mechanics work, but when he explains that there's a resource curve um, inverted to where you have all of this available at the beginning of the game, and it's like that feel that you mentioned that is like redemption because you you don't have to wait and build up and get energy on your Pokemon. You don't have to get um, mana or whatever it is in Magic the Gathering. You don't have to find ways to pay to play these cards early on. You get them, you can play them, and that does make it more open and free-going in the opening to where it's fun to play that when you're that player that's doing the stuff. But when you're on the other side where there's no interaction, that's where the issue is. And going second, you're already behind the pace as far as tempo goes, but then you're also behind the fact that they've got all of their resources because they just, you know, drew 15 extra cards in that turn to where when I hear the Schaefer solution to where it's like, you can do so much as the game progresses, I know that some people don't like that because it feels more restrictive than what Redemption has previously been. But I kind of like the the fact that we've identified the problem is that resource curve, potentially. And, you know, whether that's because of there's no interaction back and forth, but one player having all of their resources while the other player is waiting to take a turn. And in a perfect world, I think the Schaefer solution would work for me as a player. But I know that the issue with keeping up with the turns – also, the fact that some people don't like that it restricts the opening player from being able to play the way that Redemption currently has been played. So, I I mean, I see both sides of it. Um, I definitely do not like the hard counters because Limit 1 works for, like, artifacts on your artifact pile because that's a one thing and it's, you know, it's been around for a while. So, I came in knowing that, but seeing something go to an arbitrary number of just one per, why why only one, even though I have all of these in my hand? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of that. So I don't know what the best solution for the, the future of the game, but I'm glad that the conversations are happening and you get, every time we have these conversations, because it seems like they're constantly evolving and people are digging deeper into, you know, whether they've tested it and now they, realize it's got this issue and they could tweak it and this be a solution. I definitely like that. That conversation is constantly evolving, but I guess that's a, a fancy way to say, I don't know, man. <laughs> no, I get you. I get you. So I do, I'll go ahead and move on to the, what I prefer as the solutions to this and specifically um, ones that don't restrict the, the redemption feel as we'll say of the game. Um, and specifically the main one that I'm kind of deciding to champion in these discussions is the solution that, uh, Jared called eye for an eye. And for those who aren't familiar with eye for an eye, um, Jared made a forum post about it, um, as an alternate format. And, um, it's, I would love to see that rule set incorporated into the game. And it, I think scares a lot of people at first, but it's actually, a lot simpler than it appears. So fundamentally, the only thing that changes an eye for an eye is that players take their prep and discard phases simultaneously, taking turns playing one card at a time. Um, So the way that that would look is if I'm going first, I put down my, uh, my meek Peter and I'm about to play delivered on him. And my opponent now, as soon as I've played my hero, and now my opponent 
gets to play a card. So they could play a Jonah. And now um, I can play my delivered on my Peter, but now there's a Jonah in play already. And so I'd have to think twice about it. And even if I did go ahead with playing my delivered, I still get to pull out my artifact and do whatever. But my opponent is going to get a trigger on their counter card right off the bat. Um, They don't have to sit there and watch me play 20 cards, staring at their Jonah in hand, doing nothing. Um, They actually get a chance to use it. And so um, this adds a lot more interesting interplay between players in prep and discard phases. If And it also means, I think, um, that players playing slower decks would actually have a much better time now or in that world than they do now because um, they would get a chance to at least put down some of their counter cards. If, if, like, if they're not trying to speed off into oblivion, they're trying to play at anti-meta counter stuff they would um, get to deploy those counters as the opponent is setting up their combo, their go off, their all the, their full steam ahead stuff. And there would be much, much more room for players to um, shut down all in strategies. It'd be much easier that all index would become significantly more fragile. And it would, I think push people to towards more balanced decks than they play now um, because it would be a lot easier for decks that rely on like a single linchpin character. Like I know like circus um, in, in this past nationals, um, Jeremy put down a rainbow Noah and I just martyred it in territory. He put it, he put down a rainbow Noah and I knew Jeremy was on an all in deck. So I went, I spent my Christian martyr uh, to just kill it in territory and that actually ended up setting him back enough that I think that was a major contributing factor to me being able to win that game. And eye for an eye would allow much more interplay between players without having to rely solely on dominance and star abilities to accomplish that. What, what do you think about eye for an eye? Have you considered it much before? Were you familiar with the alternate format? from Jared posted earlier. I have uh, read into it and I've talked to Jared a little bit about it. You know, he was on the podcast, uh, I'd say a few episodes ago, like it was just a few weeks ago, but the way my lifespan, that's several months ago, I guess at this point. But um, I remember when he, he brought it up, he told me that he felt like it changed. It kind of changed the way the game felt. It took away, it changed too much of the redemption feel but you're saying that you think the other side of that, that it still feels like redemption, just adding interactivity or interaction between both sides throughout the prep and discard phase for each player. So, I mean, just from two people that, and I guess you mentioned in the conversation the other night on discord that you had talked to him at nationals about it. Um, So you, you had gotten, you know, at least some information about it. And then I guess you've thought about it throughout this time or whatnot. And so you feel completely opposite of him in that regard. So how do you think, how do you think you guys came up with different ideas that I know he's a newer player and he doesn't want to rock the boat too much. So that might've been part of it, but you, you don't think that it changes the way that redemption feels 
if you were to implement this? I think it me- it depends on what you mean by how redemption feels. So as I described earlier, to me, when I when I talk about how redemption feels relative to other card games, a big part of that to me is just how many cards you actually do get, get to play. Um, the fact that we don't have an increasing ramping resource system means that we actually get to, I get to build my deck and I get to kind of construct this mechanism that is my deck and I get to like make my mechanism uh, perform. I get to set the whole thing up and have it run every single game. Whereas when I play something like Magic the Gathering, I feel like I'm playing more like a, a, a generic kind of flavored ball of value rather than an a, a interworking mechanism. And it's much, much more interesting for me to build a redemption deck knowing that I will get to play the vast majority of the cards in the deck at some point during the game rather than only getting to play whatever happened to be in the top third of my deck. Um, so being able to not restrict the speed necessarily, but simply allow players to put down their speed counter. So you're still reducing the overall speed of the game, but not through a hard game rule, but just by allowing players to leverage existing options um, definitely still feels like redemption to me. But I can see how some people would just from the sheer magnitude of the change um, would say that it makes the game feel differently. I, I can respect that. Um, there are some less drastic rule changes that I think could still be beneficial. Um, and if we end up adopting a more middle ground solution that aren't as, um, fundamental to the game as I for an eye would be, but are still at least that feel less arbitrary to me, um, than something like the Schaefer solution or the chokehold solution. And specifically those are, what I call the exhaust solution, um, which refers to limiting territory class enhancements to one per character um, per phase. And the solution that I don't have a name for because Jay just mentioned it to me uh, yesterday. And that is a, a, um, a tweak where activating an artifact ends your prep phase. Um, that's, that's it. That's the whole, that's the only change. Um, just act when you activate an artifact, you carry out its ability and then you are at the beginning of battle phase and you have to present a character. Um, so I'll talk about the exhaust thing first and then come back to the artifact one. Cause I actually think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Um, with the exhaust solution, it feels significantly less arbitrary to me than limiting by turn count or just hard limiting at one per phase. Um, because a, because it allows you to, um, construct your deck to get around it. So you could intentionally, if you're still trying to build a deck that is going to trying to go off by playing a bunch of territory class enhancements, you can try and get around the rule by intentionally weighting your deck more heavily toward, um, heroes, or if you're trying to play good enhancements or evil characters, if you're trying to play a bunch of evil enhancements, and we do see all-in combo decks tending to run a large volume of a larger volume of heroes than balanced decks do anyway. However, aside from outliers like Numerous, which we'll probably talk about later, um, it's harder 
to actually get all those characters into your hand without first going off. Um, so having something like the exhaust solution would um, make it harder to get to that critical mass of cards where you're just kind of chowing through your whole deck because you'd be having to generate characters to play extra enhancements on as you generate those enhancements. What are your thoughts about the exhaust solution specifically? Um, I think that in a world where we're not trying to rock the boat too much, I think that's honestly probably the easiest to implement. I think it was Jared that mentioned turning them 45 degrees or whatnot so that they're exhausted. You can show that um, and limiting them. I think that's the quickest and easiest if you're trying to implement some of these solutions as we've you know started naming every, every idea. Mm -hmm. um, I think you could easily implement that and still keep kind of where the game is and you would just kind of slow it down or force people, like you said, to build into, okay, I can do this, but I'm going to have to pace myself throughout. You get what I'm saying to where, yeah, I think it doesn't rock the boat too much, but I don't know if it stops those players that are hyper aggressive and are selling out playing a deck that's trying to do that. Yeah. So you're basically, you see how it could be a good, a good middle of the road solution, but you're worried that it might not be effective enough. Right. With, like top flight players that are very well skilled in building a deck that can skirt around, you know, slight delays and things. Yep. I can see how that could be the case. Um, personally, I do think just from, from my limited experience trying to build the combo decks, um, they, as we've kind of seen from nationals performances versus season performances, um, I think people tend to overrate the consistency of combo decks, not necessarily the power. They are, they, every time that people have been like the past few years, that there's been a, a boogeyman combo deck, it has been worth being afraid of. Um, so the power level is definitely there, but the consistency tends to be overrated. I think due to that combo deck, mostly being tested against lackey player, like people on lackey playing decks um, for fun or um, more casual decks being brought to smaller tournaments where it's going to um, very, very, very consistently win those games, even if it has some hiccups, versus going to nationals and suddenly all the top players are probably on decks that they've been refining for a, a large amount of time, and they're actually able to consistently do the thing they're trying to do much more so than the decks earlier in the season. And so all that to say is combo decks in Redemption tend to be, I think, a lot more fragile than some people may realize and the if you had to play only one enhancement per character um the requirement of just how the having to draw the cards in just the right order to have the characters at the same speed that you're getting the enhancements i think would actually go a pretty long distance toward curbing especially the really all index um but aside from the exhaust solution itself, there's some other interesting conversation the other night um, about interaction and specifically how it related to the, the uh, playing only one card per character um, through um, making, rather than tapping the character or turning it sideways, um, you would have enhancements played in prep phase or discard phase actually stay on top of the character until the end of the phase and that would accomplish two things number one 
Um, it's a really just intuitive way to keep track of which characters have had a card played on them and which haven't because there's either an enhancement on top of it or not. Um, and also because it would allow uh, in the current card pool cards like Chronicles to completely undo um, a whole like turn's worth of uh, going off, which definitely would be a very strong curb to all index, but maybe even too much because that would be a, a lot of undoing. But what it would also allow is for um, territory cards to be interacted with more easily with future design space. So I think that there's actually, for those, um, for those familiar with Magic the Gathering terminology, the flash keyword um, is effectively a keyword that you can put on a magic card that allows it to be played in the way that more or less the way that we play dominance and redemption and that you can play it pretty much at any time, whether it's your turn or not, or regardless of what phase you're in. And you could just put flash or an equivalently named mechanic on redemption cards and it would just work. Like you could, if, if flash existed as a keyword as it does in magic, you could just make a character that was um, flash territory class negate a card and that would that would be a functional redemption card um, that would be another way to allow interaction um, without having to change something fundamental to the game like the eye for an eye format would. And um, that design space would um, be opened up dramatically by cards played in territory sticking around for a whole phase rather than disappearing to the discard pile immediately. So you actually had a chance to um, negate them with some kind of instant speed effect. What do you think about that specifically? When you described the flash thing that triggered uh, an idea of like, again, limited other card game knowledge, um, but something like hand traps almost to where your opponent does something and now a card mm -hmm. in your hand can activate and put itself in play. You've activated my trap card. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but like specifically to where like if they play, if your opponent plays more than three territory class enhancements or activates more than three, the card can do something. So something like that. That's what I, I mm -hmm. went to when you were describing that. I was like, oh, that'd be a cool design space to have like hand traps in redemption. So that if you go, if you push the envelope too much in prep phase, then your opponent could boom, drop a hard counter because you've gone too far. And then that would kind of curb it a little bit. But I I like the idea of the easy remembering, able to just look at whatever cards have been played on whatever heroes so that you know whether you can play one on that hero or not when you are exhausting them using that keyword, if we choose that as the keyword for this. Um, but when I hear these solutions and I think it's, it's what most people do if, especially if they have any type of, uh, analytical mindset is to try to find like, how would you poke holes in it? And mm -hmm. I think that's the best way to initially, especially early on before you get into like hard play testing, something is to make sure that it's worth play testing by thinking about all of the ways that it could be abused. And I just think, Oh, I've got all of these cards sitting on these characters. Now I will activate three nails and shuffle all these cards back into my deck. If you know, they, they allowed me to fish out and get like my dominance son of God or whatever. And then, you know, or, or the opponent did something that, that stopped you and you still got all these cards. There, there'd be a way to potentially be like, okay, this isn't working the way I wanted to. 
reset, shuffle them all back, and come out and do it again. Um, not that that is a, a huge thing. It's kind of like um, I think Jaden mentioned that the empty tomb, the way it would interact with uh, one of these solutions would be something to keep in mind because I don't think there's any solution that when you implement it is going to be 100%. Oh, yeah, it's like the cards were made for this. There's going to be some cards that fall by the wayside or that don't operate as intended anymore or are not as effective as they have previously been. Um, And I think that's where this conversation brings out a lot of passion among players because we do all have certain cards that we enjoy playing, that we like playing. Um, And it's why like cards like Remnant that people had worked up, um, maybe saved up and, you know, bit the bullet and paid $50 for this ultra rare card when rotation was announced. And they're like, oh, now I've got this card that isn't as effective for me anymore. Um, and I think that little things like that are, you're going to find those types of resistance along the way, but finding a way to, I guess, think about how you would effectively poke holes in, in these strategies or these play styles um, in the early going and seeing if there's just something big that breaks with them. I think I really like the way that Chronicles would be. I mean, that's a card that's really good and it has multiple uses. You can use it to kind of have an ongoing, you know, prevent enhancements throughout someone's prep phase, or you can use it in battle. And we saw it getting a lot of play after LOC came out and then impartial judgment went crazy. And people were like, I'll get rid of all my evil cards, except for I'll keep this. And now I'll negate this. And then I'll get all my cards back. And so we had that getting a lot of play. And then it went away because, you know, Crowd's Choice came out. You've got the Resurrection now. You've got other Dominus that take up those slots that push you towards that aggressive, like I'm going to get all of my resources now and do what I want to and play my deck the way that I want to turn one to where Chronicles is almost an afterthought with most people nowadays, it seems like. I don't see it in a ton of lists that are put out. You see Crowd's Choice and the Resurrection and a lot of things now that Phase 2's out. And there's not always a slot for something like Chronicles to where just the the fact of how far we've come in this direction to where you're saying it would bring back something like Chronicles to be that effective for that, that's pretty cool. So I do like that that aspect of it. Yeah, I think that's a great point that the the first step in any of these solutions is to try and poke holes in it. Because that really is, I think, definitely that's just true. Um better to spend like uh, an hour trying to think, oh, is there anything that just makes this clearly not work without banning 30 cards or uh, before you spend like a month playtesting it is definitely worthwhile. The thing that I thought of that would break the uh, exhaust thing with, with placing cards on the characters at first, I was thinking bouncing might, but then I remembered that like bouncing characters in battle, you, the enhancements are discarded. They don't go back to hand. So that wouldn't break it, but I hadn't thought of three nails specifically. Um, that would potentially be problematic. I think it's possible that the limiting the three nails being limited um, to unity meek would definitely curb that from being for sure broken, but it, I could definitely still see that potentially being broken. Um, but if, if it's only three nails that breaks it, then maybe that solution is worth um, banning three nails. Um, but that's that would be a, something to consider way farther uh, down we, the road. We can't ban three nails. Three nails is, I, I honestly feel like that's almost a vital, like you got to have that in your back pocket against a lot of these speed decks. I'd hate to see that card get banned. But also, 
in in the the way that I describe that is there's really not much benefit to I played all these enhancements I got the benefit and now I'm going to basically reset the game so I I don't know what the benefit there would be unless you're trying to fish to you know just your dominance or something um, or like you you realize that something's not working you you comboed the wrong way and you want to to reset that um, but in that same vein a new beginning dominant would also if the cards are sitting there in your whatever phase, your prep phase, boom, a new beginning, shuffle everything. Um, so, but I, I, again, I don't know how, how consequential that is to this as far as a big hole in it, because what's the benefit of setting up and then immediately without playing farther into the rest of your turn resetting? Yep, exactly. And I think especially in the new beginning, the limiting factor of them being flood survivors would make it even harder to break this than the limiting factor of Unity Meek. But um, someone, I believe, is playing Flood Survivors, I saw. So, you know, you said Jay finally pulled you around. <laughs> You're playing Flood Survivors. How How is that going? So, Flood Survivors, I will actually, I, we were, I was, you know, yeah, I'll talk about the deck. I, I posted it in Z Temple, so I, it's not a secret anymore. Um, I mentioned to Jay at some point around the around the end of the last season Hey, couldn't you like flood survivors don't actually have to draw any cards? Couldn't you just make like a meek soul, meek hiding defense, uh, slap flood on top of it, stuff all your souls in the bottom of your deck, and then just not ever shuffle your deck and not ever draw, and then just kind of sit there drawing three cards and none of them being souls for the whole rest of the game? And he was like, huh, yeah, maybe you could. And so he went and built a flood deck that did that. Um, and five owed me with it in the qualifier, and um, the two of us have been tweaking it since then. And I actually do think that it's a top tier rotation deck, and and a top tier classic deck potentially as well. Um, I think it's definitely if it it may not be when when all things when everything shakes out and we actually get a, a truly refined deck, um, truly refined meta. I don't know how consistently it will be able to stack up against the all-in combo decks, but I do think it actually very well may be just as strong as they are, despite not really caring about um, speed and more so just caring about consistently setting up a few key cards. How much territory class stuff do you guys use in that deck? Just, you know, going down, because I, when I first started playing the game, played Flood Survivor, so, you know, that, that piqued my curiosity at least a little bit. But how, how many territory class cards do you guys rely on in that? I don't have the number off the top of my head, um, but it's it's a pretty... The offense is a very standard flood build. Um, there's nothing particularly... There's no crazy... Um, I'm not using like any like weird Galileans lines. I, I've been really enjoying Galileans lines in other decks, but I'm, I'm not doing any weird Galilean cards that go, going to this, to this, to this, to generate speed. Um, it's just a standard... Uh, play all the cards that set up Noah and all the cards that set up Ark and try and get Noah plus Ark turn one, same thing that every Flood Survivors deck has been doing since it came out. And then uh, on your defense, you've got a relatively standard mono black meek soul focused defense that's trying to get to trying to get down Sheol, trying to find Anis, um, and then just keep all your souls off the table. There are some funny evolutions of it that we've done that i i won't spoil i'll wait until you probably some of you may run into jay playing the, the funny versions at a regional at some point 
Um, but uh, yeah, watch out for that. Yeah, I, I don't know how well it goes into it. I just know that um, last year Jay, I believe, at one point was trying, or may it, maybe it was it was the year before, um, where he was trying to do is it complacent lost soul, whichever one negates. Uh, what is it? OT heroes or something in battle. Um, you, you know, accusers is OT. Humans okay. There battle. you go. And then having the ability to have Noah's wife make them CBP. And I was just wondering if there was uh, any weird versions floating around that maybe tried to utilize some like counter souls like that. Cause I know he had tried that at some point recently or semi recently, you know, Jay, Jay's built probably a million different iterations of flood seven, four to the face. Oh yeah. So Nope, it's it's straight meek souls. Um, you definitely want you want your meek soul payoffs to consistently work. So yeah, all the all the versions that I've tested are are straight meek souls all the way down. Cool. Well, uh, break away from that and get back to on, on to this. So mm. the you you had started talking about the different ways to do the exhaust, but you also mentioned that the aforementioned J had one where the turn just forced you into battle phase when you activated your artifact. So what can you tell us about that new proposed idea? Yeah. So that's actually one of the more intriguing ideas that I have heard. And I haven't had much chance to think about it because Jay literally just, I told him I was coming on today to talk about um, various solutions. And he was like, Oh yeah. How about about this? And I was like, that's actually a pretty interesting idea. I'll mention it for sure. I hadn't considered that. Um, It's, it's probably my favorite solution that I know of that's strictly a speed limiting solution. I would love to see some way of increasing interactivity, whether that be something extreme like eye for an eye or something less extreme like um, enhancements sticking around and then flashcards being added that can negate them. Um, But as far as solutions that strictly just kind of lower the top end speed of decks, I actually like this quite a lot because it would prevent you from using stuff like Denarius or stuff like 40 coin to fuel your going off even further. So you could still play cards that try and search for that, search for those speed artifacts to give yourself an early boost, but you can't then exponentially combo off with find like one card that surges to Denarius, which draws you four card or draws you three cards, and then those three cards get you more cards to get you more cards. You would just have that one line of cards that ends at Daenerys, you draw your three, but now you're in battle and you can't utilize those cards until later. And an opponent would get to actually um, have at least their first turn block take place before you got to utilize that extra speed. Um, and there, there's nothing extra that you have to track. There's, you don't have to keep track of turn timers. You don't, there's nothing arbitrary. Um, there's an arbitrary numbers at least. Um, it's just as simple as, and our activating artifact means you your next action is presenting a hero in battle or passing to discard. Um, definitely something that I want to think more about um, and think of if there's anything that it negatively affects too much. Um, I think most of what it would negatively affect is there's there's obviously a few artifacts that would definitely be less powerful, but I think the vast majority of the artifacts that would be meaningfully nerfed are ones that are probably too strong anyway, those being sp- the speed ones that everybody's playing right now. Um, and maybe this would even incentivize people to um, rely less on the speed artifacts and go back to playing um, 
artifacts that have like um, ongoing effects that aren't necessarily speed, but have an actual effect on the board, which is the, I, I prefer seeing the artifact pile design wise being used for those more interesting um, synergy effects than rather than the pure speed boost. But the existence of those, how of those really powerful speed boost artifacts in their current form makes it really difficult to not run them. And I, and I like this solution because it actually gives me a reason not to. Yeah, that's, that's definitely something to think about there. So it would turn, just throw out a card, for example, of Book of the Law. You can have the instant ability to bounce a hero, and then if blocked from hand, you can take a good card from your deck, something like that. So, But that's a, that's a card that, in an artifact slot, is infinitely less... Uh, less enticing to play in the current game state than, you know, building your deck to include Meek Peter and throwing down four drop McCoy or mm-hmm. having Daenerys getting you a decent blocker from one of the emperors and getting you a draw three, but not being able to combo that and just have the chain in there. I think what this does is, you know, back to trying to, how would you break that? If I was trying to get around that rule, first of all, delivered in my discard phase instead of in my prep phase. Um, but then also, if you play delivered, is that does that count as the activation that pushes you into battle or do you then get to activate another one? If it was up to me, I would say activate it just the simplest way, I think, to do it, to make it easiest to understand and the, the one that people would ask the least questions about is just simply if you're in prep, and you activate an artifact, you're you're in battle now. Whether that be from off a of delivered or off your normal artifact activation or whatever else. If you turn if you if you're activating an artifact, you're done with prep. Um, and that would make delivered less good. And I don't think anybody would mind <laughs> making delivered less good. Yeah, I guess in that same vein, you could have if you just wanted to nerf like the artifact pile in a way. And this is just spitballing here, so I don't I don't want to take your idea and or Jay's idea and contort it into something else. But what if you had to play an artifact face down, or you had to play it and it's inactive until upkeep, and then in upkeep you could activate an artifact from your artifact pile. But then you have all the characters now because that's kind of gotten out of hand. With I can activate this on this guy, this on this guy, to where you can have so many simultaneously active artifacts. But if it was just a strict artifact pile, that would be something you could do potentially as well. So it has to spend a turn on the pile and then upkeep. You select whichever one from the pile. But I like the idea. And you talk about cards that would get, you know, nerfed, at least in some regard. They would not be as strong. Um, Obviously, something like Book of the Covenant that lets you go get a covenant. But then, well, now you can't play it because you can't activate them later on in the turn. You have to wait till next turn because now you're in battle phase. But that still has utility because you can go get a covenant that is, you know, something that's useful in battle potentially, or you mm-hmm. can save it for next turn. So there's there's probably ways to where it mitigates, like the 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 cards that it nerfs. They still have some kind of playability. I think that one probably has. I mean, it ha- it definitely has merit to think about to uh, how it would affect the current game state. But then, I think with so many like branched out ways to activate artifacts and things, you know, like you can put a covenant and set aside on Ark of Salvation. So if I put a blue covenant 
on Ark of Salvation and set aside. That's not in play. Does that force me to battle? I think I think no matter how you try to word that, there would be a lot of questions, especially from new players, of how to implement that cleanly, if that's fair to say. It is. I see I see what you're saying. I still think that um the if you did it, if you went straight forward with it and just don't care about set aside, don't care if it's play, don't care if it's off delivered, don't care about anything, just Acme artifact equals go to battle would actually be a pretty easy thing to, if you're telling a new player, um, just one, one of the thing, it's just one of the facts of the game that like, there's plenty of facts of the game that we have drilled into our heads. Um, like nobody has to remind you that it's, you, you draw three cards, not four, like those the things that we just know. Um, I think just the fact that you can't artifact, you can't activate artifacts in discard phase, but you can in prep phase is an example of an existing artifact rule that's harder for new players to remember than this would be. When it's something that easy that you can just drill into them, that after an artifact equals battle phase um, would actually not only be easy to dr- drill into the head of a new player, but may actually help them flow through the phases better um, as they are, because um, it kind of ties these two phases together. And they think, okay, prep phase equal artifact then battle and it kind of it's it's a natural flow at least to me um that would seem very intuitive to me and i i from my experience teaching new players i think that that would be a pretty it would be a pretty easy thing to to communicate yeah i i can see that as well just i was playing devil's advocate you know with all of the widespread ways to activate artifacts um, and that's probably more where you're going to get the resistance from players that are like, oh, man, I like doing this, and you're taking this away, so now how can I say that this is a problem so that we cannot do it? Uh, you know, something like mm-hmm. that to where you just they're ingrained to have ways that when they, they build a deck now, you can activate three to four artifacts at a time in certain aspects or regards if you build your deck that way and having that taken away. I guess that's where you would get probably more of the the outcry than just straight new players because it is something that like you can't rescue more than one soul uh, in battle type of thing. Uh, You can't activate an artifact and discard. So I can see how if you just hit them with this is a hard rule, boom, early on before it gets out of hand. So let me ask you before and we're getting to the end of any questions that I have. And, you know, I'll, I'll let you have the floor to say anything else that you want to want to talk about. But um, you mentioned banning cards is the other way is to ban a bunch of cards. But that's a you said in that conversation on Discord that that's a temporary fix. What do you think specifically about? And I know that this has come up a couple of times. It even came up at some point in that conversation or shortly after that conversation about numerous and then Emmaus Road. And I think New Covenant got thrown in there at one point from the IJ Plus suite of cards. But do you think that any of those cards, uh, primarily, I guess, Numerous as a Stars, because it enables you to get such a massive card advantage if you build your deck to have those stars in hand, do you think any of those are worthy of a ban right now at this point? If you were, if you have your Elder Hat on and you still you get to make the call, would you ban any of those cards? Or is there any other cards in the game you would ban right now? Oh boy, given me with an elder hat is probably a pretty dangerous thing. But uh, with, <laughs> with, with me putting on this elder hat, um, do I think banning some of these cards is a good idea? So I, in general, am a, pro- am a proponent of banning cards. So I know some people um, 
in, especially more so in the past, for a long time, the general community consensus seemed to be we don't want to ban any cards with like for the liner being the only exception for a long time. Um, we, we want all the cards to be playable. We don't want to um, like have people show up to a tournament and then tell them, oh, sorry, you can't play that card, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those are valid concerns, but I think in the long run, the benefits to removing cards from the pool through rotation and also through bans are an extreme net positive on the game. And I think with, with rotation happening and um, a few bans other than liner happening, I think that the community is coming around to that. And I would like to see that continue. Obviously, I don't, I don't want to ban everything that is powerful. Um, but I think that the game would be better off if we banned cards slightly more often than we do now. As for the cards specifically that you brought up, um, the cards that I most am like kind of looking at as like, hmm, this card is a little bit problematic. Um, numerous is probably numerous is on the list, and uh, Emmaus Road is on the list. Um, other cards that I would add to that would be delivered, um, Star of Bethlehem, and one other card that I'll mention at the end because it's it's for a different reason than the rest of these, but um. So I'll, I'll address Star of Bethlehem because that's the easiest one. It, does, it definitely does not need to be banned, but I just want to mention it because I think there's a very, very easy fix that would be a very, very good effect on the game, which is just simply changing it to trigger star abilities of other cards rather than cards, which would make it exclude its own star ability. Um, hey, I, I've had conversations about that as well. Um, and the, not, to, not to pull your point here, but the thought that I had was just having dominance because it fixes that Noah shuffle thing as well. Just dominance when they resolve are not considered in play so that boom, you know, it's not considered in play or something, something like that so that you, mm -hmm. you don't get to trigger its star ability or reveal it because it's not there. Yep. I could see that that might have, I'd have to get uh, Marcus on to clarify, but I think that might have some weird implications with woes if it, put itself in the discard pile before it placed itself. Um, but that could probably, you could either implement this rule and then even if that was the case, implement this rule and then probably there's some easy errata to woes to make it work how it appears. Or you could not implement the rule and then make a small errata to um, Star of Bethlehem. But how, whatever way that you approach it is not really a priority to me as long as Star of Bethlehem can no longer trigger its own star ability. I think that's, that's a slam dunk change um, i think the card is still very the card itself and the nativity theme overall are still perfectly playable um you're not banning a card you're not errating a card significantly the card will still do what most players think it does i don't think that players triggering itself with itself is what most players assume is possible if they're just a new player reading the card that knows how star abilities work but is seeing that card for the first time I don't think it's their natural go-to. So I think that's a pretty easy change that is, would have not nearly as much blowback as outright banning a card would. Um, so I, I would really love to see that happen. But as far as banning cards like Numerous and Emmaus Road um, and then potentially delivered, um, I think that there is, as a general rule, 
This applies mostly to Emmaus Road. I believe cards that are primarily a consistency card should only be a consistency card because there's this um, trade-off in deck building usually where you can make your deck more consistent or you can make your deck more powerful. So for example, if you have six good enhancement, you have room for six good enhancements in your deck. Either you can play your six best good enhancements or you can play your three best good enhancements and three cards that search for the other three. Um, the deck that's running half tutors, half battle cards is going to more consistently play their best cards. However, if those three tutor cards are only tutor cards like Lord's Prayer, for example, rather than Emmaus Road that can also be a battle winner if you have nothing else to do with it, um, that deck that has half tutors is eventually going to play those three cards and sometimes the game won't be over yet. And now they're, they've, they've put those tutors, either they're gone in the discard pile or like Lord's Prayer, they're back in their deck. And now they're either running out of cards or they're drawing cards that are more or less a brick because they're running out of things to search for. And now there's actually a meaningful cost to running those consistency cards because the deck that chose to run six straight battle winners, maybe they drew their sixth best battle winner turn one, but now on turn six or seven, they're still drawing battle winners while you're drawing useless tutor cards. And so there's a meaningful trade-off between how much consistency is in your deck versus how much power is in your deck. Cards like Emmaus Road in rotation, or an ex as an example in Classic, Consider the Lilies was an even worse one. Um, they, um, there's basically no cost to putting them in your deck. They don't make you make that trade-off. The only thing they do is they just simply accelerate the whole meta because everybody's going to run them, and it, it, it just makes the game faster without a meaningful downside. And so I would love to see, and I think they have, they have moved in this direction, I would love to see them never print a card again that that can be as powerful of a tutor as um, Emmaus Road is that can ever be played in battle for anything other than maybe numbers. Um, something that has, it, it, if it directly converts itself into power and is a strong tutor, then I don't think the game is better for it existing. So by that criteria, Emmaus Road as the most, probably the most prolific of these cards, I do think the game would be better off without it. The other thing that specifically Emmaus Road does is it allows you to chain um, a lot of cards together that you otherwise wouldn't be able to because of it being a uh, gospel enhancement. And so if Delivered were to remain in the game, then removing Emmaus Road would mean that getting Delivered would now be a lot harder in certain decks that rely on Emmaus Road to kind of chain things together. Um, as for Numerous, I think that Numerous is, there's nothing inherently wrong with Numerous as a card. Maybe the fact that it could, that it can get um, people from deck and discard pile is a little strong, but for a long time, Numerous was a perfectly fine card and perhaps even an underpowered card. I think we probably should have been playing it sooner than we did. So props to Jeremy for realizing how busted it was now. Um, but that's an example of a card that simply became way stronger over time due to the sheer volume of star cards that got printed. And I do think that right now it is, it's too strong 
Um, I don't, it's, it wasn't designed for there to be this many star cards and the sheer volume of cards that it can pull combined with the fact that it can get things back from discard um, means that it's, it's just a really, really um, powerful way to generate more card advantage than you should be able to. So again, that's another example of a card that I think would be better off to not exist. Um, And then finally delivered is an example of not only a tutor and not only uh, it's not only a tutor, it also allows you to do something fundamentally impossible without it. And it's both of those things combined in one card. So even just um, an enhancement that allowed you to activate a card from Artifact Pile, I think would get played. If Delivered said activate an Artifact from Artifact Pile instead of from Deck, it would not be nearly as prolific, of course, but some decks would play it because that effect is just so strong being able to activate a second Artifact that it is worth it on a card. The fact that it also generates that card out of thin air and then plays it is just phenomenally overpowered. And I don't think that that card makes the game better. Um, I also feel that it make, it's, a, it's a little bit limiting, not as much as it was, um, but I still feel kind of compelled to fit it somewhere. I feel like my deck is... that. There's definitely... There are viable decks that don't run delivered. It's not as warping as it was a year ago, but it still has a warp factor where you're really incentivized to play colors either on offense or defense that allow you to fit that card into your deck. And I think the game would just be better off without it. What do you think about um, those three cards, numerous Mercimaeus, Road, and Delivered? Um, I, much like you, feel that Emmaus Road is probably the one that enables like delivered. So if delivered existed without Emmaus road, I also, I guess I would take, um, on the, the side of cards like that, even, even the cards, like now you have Lord's prayer. Um, you also have clinging to power wages, all, all these cards that constantly do basically that same thing to where you use them, you put them back in your deck, then you get them back. Then you use them again in the same phase. Like, I feel like cards should not be. I would I would prefer maybe one of these solutions can incorporate that to where a card can only be activated once per phase, something like Emmaus Road. But the fact that it also has that battle winning capability in a deck where you've slotted that card slot for consistency, and now later in the game, you know, mid to late game, you can use this card as a battle winner. Um, I think that's that's. That's probably teetering on. It's a little too strong, but then the fact that it's it's so easy with it being gospel to be recurred, I think out of all of these, I think that's probably the one that I think goes should go first if one does go, and you're not worried about it being an ultra rare. Because sure, you can build your deck to take advantage of delivered and numerous as the stars, but if you don't have the card that's connecting those, because all of these new cards that let you go and get a card. Sure. You can use crowd choice, a dominant, a dominant to go and get those is a worthwhile cost for that dominant slot, I think, but going and getting 
new covenant to activate to get Emmaus Road or getting Lord's Prayer to Emmaus Road to then go to any star to grab these Old Testament star cards that don't fit in with a New Testament style deck that is now popular because of GOC coming out. Um, I think you would break up the consistent consistency of the others if you got rid of Emmaus Road. So I think if I were to put them in order of the ones that are more problematic, I think probably Emmaus Road, Numerous as the Stars, and then Delivered, because without Emmaus Road, I think Delivered becomes kind of what Delivered was intended to be, to where those brigades get a bump, but it's kind of more at random draw or building your deck to force your ability to get to Delivered. Yep, I agree with that. As far as the like the lesser powerful similar cards that you mentioned to Emmaus Road, like Clinging, Wages, and Lord's Prayer, um, despite Clinging and Wages both being cards that break my my philosophy of being powerful tutors and also playable in battle, I think that's much more forgivable of an effect on defense just due to the, the consistency cards up until recently have been very heavily weighted towards offense. And so having a critical mass of... It, it, it's much more difficult to put together a critical mass of evil consistency. Now that's another example of where delivered is kind of broken um, that, that, uh, that line because you can use wages to go to it. And that's a way to convert evil consistency into speed, which normally hasn't existed. So that's another example where delivered breaks the paradigm. But in general, um, I think giving cards like clinging to power and wages to evil is more acceptable i probably still would not print any more of them um but i definitely don't think they need to be anything needs to be done to them and then lord's prayer on offense again is an example of a card that i probably wouldn't print again um if i was going to ever print a tutor like that that it's good that it can't go to discard or be used in battle so it does eventually become a dead card but the fact that it can pull from deck or reserve and it can pull any gospel enhancement is broad enough utility that I would probably not choose to print a similar card if it were up to me. But again, I don't think that's problematic enough that it needs to get banned. That's my same opinion on New Covenant. Um, I think that it's a card that is it's too broad. Um, the fact that it's an artifact that just pulls you any gospel enhancement from deck or reserve, just Lord's Prayer on a stick, um, it's a bit too strong. I wouldn't choose to print a similar card again. Um, but I also don't think it's necessarily something that needs to be dealt with. I think it could be argued the game is better off without it, but probably not enough so that it needs to be actively dealt with, especially if some of these other cards are being dealt with. Okay, let me ask you this. For an example like Emmaus Road, a more toned-down version, if when it came out it said, take a card, a, a star card from deck, basically, or search, search deck or reserve for a star card. Would you, do you think you personally being a, you know, well-equipped deck builder, do you think you would ever use that as a consistency card uh, if it didn't have the re recurring ability, you know, being able to be used multiple times or the battle winning? Do you think it then becomes a standalone just tutor, one-use tutor? Do you think it becomes too watered down that you would not ever play it? Absolutely not. You definitely still play it. Would you auto-include it in any deck in its colors? No, but um, I think that's a good thing. I, it would relegate it towards decks that are specifically trying to 
end the game as fast as possible by committing half their deck to finding the more powerful half of their deck. And I think that, and, and, and by general, at general terms, an aggro deck. I think that aggro decks existing is perfectly fine. I think that, that, that decks that choose to play um, as far toward the aggro side of the aggro to value trade-off as possible, um, I think that's an, that's an excellent way to play. Um, it's an excellent um, deck building option. And I think that there's plenty of room in the game of Redemption for people to slot cards that are just tutors, especially with that. Like, we're spoiled in Redemption with how free and broad our tutors are. Um, being able to pull any star card from deck or reserve, even if you there's no battle winner on the end of it, even if it doesn't reshuffle, just that one-shot tutor effect, I think would be plenty strong for the card to get played. Um, maybe it wouldn't be interesting enough of a card to still have been an ultra rare but you, you, you could have made a different card in ultra rare and and just made that card part of the set um as far as would it have gotten played i think definitely yes um i just want to see i think those cards will still get played there's room to print them i just want them to actually force you when you're deck building to choose to make that trade-off of consistency versus value that's that's definitely fair I can't tell you the last time that I built a deck that I was like, how does delivered not, how does delivered fit into this deck? Whatever it was, even to the point like you've done that because I believe the first lackey grand prix, you were running a deck with Assyrians just so that you were in pale green so that you could play delivered. And now you've got mm -hmm. Herod. So you've got a better defense to do that with now. Um, exactly. to basically put it in any deck, but you did, you did mention earlier that you wanted to talk about those cards because then there was one you would bring up at the end. So I'm interested to hear what, what that was. Yep, it's Virgin Birth. Ban it. I'm tired of putting uh, it in all my deck, but I have to. I'm, I'm not, I, some people think I'm joking. I'm not joking. I have to, it, it is optimal in every deck. I know some, some people agree with me, some people don't. Trust me, just put it in your decks. I don't care if you can play it as a good enhancement or not. Just put it in your deck. It is worth it. You know what's crazy is I've been building a lot of like these contender decks and like mid-level decks for trying to teach new players and things. And I went on Ken's website. I'm sorry, John. I know you sponsor the podcast, but I'm going to talk about Three Lions Gaming for a second. They had a sale on some singles. I won't tell you what all I bought, but I did buy like 10 copies of 25 cent Virgin Birth. <laughs> like, I don't know why they were 25 cents, but... I'll give you $2.50. I need 10 of those to throw in pretty much every other deck that I have because it, it, the star alone, plus you can make those brigades work to get you a hero at some point. Oh, yeah. Um, one of my favorite things that my favorite uh, Virgin Birth targets has been um, Fifth Seal. I know like that's a, a lot of people auto include that in main decks in like in pretty much any white deck. I think that's a pretty safe include. Um but in decks that aren't necessarily trying to set up anything specific with um, with that card, with the seal, turn one, they just are kind of playing it as a general value card. Um, moving it to reserve actually lets you convert Virgin Birth into a battle-ready enhancement by pulling that and then tutoring for something. And it's actually a really effective way to convert Virgin because a lot of times, yeah, you can convert convert Virgin Birth into value by pulling some here, like pull a Polycarp or something. Um, but it's a lot harder 
to turn a tutor effect that pulls a hero into directly contributing toward winning a battle the turn that you draw that card than it is being able to pull a, a good enhancement. And so like choosing to put what otherwise would be a strong tutor, moving fifth seal from your deck to your reserve to be a virgin birth target, I found to be very effective. Okay, let me point out the similarities I found between your banned targets currently. So numerous as a stars, you said you think is probably too strong. Virgin birth, you said get it out of there. You're tired of putting it in every deck that you play. Both of those are star abilities that give you a plus a hard plus one. Or I mean, I guess it's it's not plus one because you're trading off virgin birth for this. But the fact that it then can be played again in battle. Um, I mean, if you top deck it again, you can use the star ability. Or you then can use it in territory or battle to grab a hero or whatever um, as just a standard enhancement. Numerous able to, oh, here, I'll show you my hand. I've got five stars. I'm going to go get five heroes from wherever. So star abilities that generate you an actual card versus I'm top decking a card or I'm going and searching for this to then, you know, you know, have it's almost like a promissory note for the other star abilities it's like you can get this card but only if you have jeshua in territory and you're top decking it mm -hmm. uh things like that but these are the two cards uh and i think they're the only two cards unless i'm missing one which i could very well be but these are the only ones that put a card in your hand just from the star ability so there are a couple um there's abraham that doesn't put it like abraham doesn't put it in your hand but abraham plays oh yeah play plays um, to me a dude Peter plays a dude. Yeah. Um, David plays a fortress. Um, somebody else plays fishing boat. Um, so there are a few that do act, that do they don't put a card in your hand, but they do plus one you. None of, uh, with a aside, aside from the Abraham being able to generate a rainbow Noah that actually was used in in circus. Um, I'm the rest of those haven't been overpowered. I, I still don't really like them. If it was up to me, I would never print star cards that generated you an actual extra card, nor would I even print ones that cycled themselves, um, like Virgin Birth especially, or even Moses. I, Moses is less is not nearly as much of an auto-clude as Virgin Birth is, um, just due to the fact that you're not digging six cards for one. You're, you're just drawing cards, and it could be anything. Um, and the fact that it's a lot harder to convert the Moses into value when you inevitably draw him and don't throw him back than it is virgin birth. But I would just choose, if it were up to me, to never print star abilities that do that. Um, this um, Offering your son and bearing our sin, those being respectively a star card that um, reserves itself to draw one and a star card that discards an evil card from hand to draw one, walk a very fine line. Um I don't think those are necessarily problematic. Bearing our sin, the reserve itself to draw one, especially, is to me an auto-include in decks that can actually utilize it. Um, but I would I would choose to not print those effects on star abilities. But I don't think they're necessarily that big of an issue. Um, it's it, So it, it seemed like you were trying to tie together the fact that a lot of the problematic cards are star cards. Is that, is that, what, is that the point you were going for? Um, I mean, there there is that just because there's that extra layer to connect cards, um, you know, like things search Old Testament, New Testament, gospel. You have these ways to search cards, but star kind of blends all of those together. But then also, 
I guess I was more speaking primarily to the ones that get you a card for very little cost of, you know, like numerous. Yeah, it's a card, a card slot in your deck. And but if you build around it, like that's the cost is nowhere near like an actual card slot because of how much value you get when you actually play it. And Virgin Birth's kind of the same way to where it's not really costing you a slot. You throw it in and it's always generating you something. But yes, I, I do also see these the fact that star cards seem to be more of the problematic overall um, because there's different, like you can tie in different themes just because they're star cards. Genesis star, you know, you get a star from John. You get a, a, a star from Luke. You get a star from Second Kings. You can just tie all these together just because they're star. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, it may have been a little bit of an oversight to make cards like Emmaus Road only get a star card, whereas I know that I saw some of the gospel cards um, specifically will allow you to like search for a top deck, a New Testament star card where they're kind of they're they're limiting the search by star card, but also clarifying it further by adding a second limiting factor. I think making tutors more specific by making them narrowing them by two or even three attributes is a great direction. I think I don't think the game benefits from having tons of broad tutors because all that really does is homogenize decks and make it easier to throw them all in one big pile. Um, Having tutors that serve specific purposes that are limited to only working within certain archetypes um, is a great way to still print tutors, but make them significantly less powerful and also have way lower risk of them spawning a over-the-top, all-in deck-like circus or um, nativity combo. Yeah. So lots of good conversation here and continuing that Discord conversation and kind of getting into more of like your thoughts about it. Before we wrap up here, though, is there anything that maybe we haven't touched on or maybe that you want to, even if it's you know kind of off-topic, is there anything that you want to uh, share with the beautiful people out there that listen to the podcast the floor is yours, sir. Thanks. So I'm not really, I know we're a pretty small community, so probably most of the people that listen to this already know about this. Um, But for those of you that are podcast listeners that enjoy deck building and um, just kind of working, working together to push the meta forward, um, there's a discord server called Zerubal's Temple that um, Jay Chambers and I run where we just all collaborate on decks. Um, and if you aren't already in it and don't have an invite link handy, um, feel free to PM me on Discord as I'm Kevin the Dude, if you don't know, um, and I'll get you in there. I'm The purpose of that Discord, it started off initially to be a small group of people where we were going to try and find the best decks so we could all do better at Nationals. Um, but then it just kind of gradually grew and eventually became what it is now, which is just an open platform for anyone to join, where with the goal being to evolve the meta as far as we possibly can. I want to know what's what the best deck is because I want to I want to know what uh, what the limits of the meta are once we've actually I want to actually figure out what is really what is actually good and what actually works. So if that sounds interesting, then get in there. I need more, need always need more people refining stuff. Um, the only other shout outs I would have would be 
Another Discord server to join is the uh, Lackey Grand Prix Discord. Um, Jay hosts regular tournaments and plans on uh, continuing to do so, and things are only going to ramp up from here. There's always exciting things in the works, and it's just an excellent way to play Redemption if you don't have as much of that going on as you would like. Um, the, if you don't know, the tournaments are on a um, when they run you'll play one match per week. So all you have to do to participate is just coordinate with your opponent for that week and find any time during those seven days that the two of you can sit down for an enjoyable game of redemption. And it's, it's a great way to get that going and participate with the community. So if you aren't already in there and participating with those, then definitely get in there. Um, you can PM me for an invite to that discord server too, if you don't already have access to a link. Um, and then the last thing is something I've already got mentioned before, but put Virgin Birth in your deck. Just trust me. Just put Virgin Birth in your deck. Speaking about deck advice from you, I guess at some point we should probably have you on, back on to talk about your general theology of deck building where you have like, what is it, 17 and a half ways to a hero or whatever. <laughs> you know, yep. uh, just kind of share. I, 11, but yeah. Yeah. For those for those keeping notes at home, it's eleven. Um, <laughs> but at some point, we can have you on if you want to want to share that with the community and and talk about the. Uh, it's almost like I know that when I first started playing, I, I was around Jay, and then Jay would talk about how he talked to you at at a certain point, and it's almost like some of your some of your methods to deck building are almost like when people talk about like NFL coaching trees to where like this guy does it this way. Now I do it this way based off of how that guy does it to where a lot of those like tree branches point back to this method that you have. That's really analytical about how you craft your deck, what goes in reserve and all of that. So that'd be a cool topic to have on at some point. Sure. I, I would love to do that there. Um, we can talk about the, the ratioing. We can talk about um, hyper geometric calculators um, plenty of things that probably fill up an episode with there. So yeah, uh, stay tuned listeners. Cause it sounds like I'll be back with some of that at some point. Yep. So I guess we'll go ahead and get ready to wrap up here. Thanks for coming on and thank you guys for listening. Catch you later. Peace. See you. All right, guys, as always, thank you for listening and sticking around for the episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Enjoyed having Josh come on. Maybe we'll have him back on to talk some deck building in the future. But hopefully you enjoyed kind of the way that we branched out that conversation that you guys had in Discord the other day. You know, unpacked it a little bit and got Josh's thoughts since he was one of the main contributors to uh, that conversation. And we hadn't had him on. I've been trying to get him on a couple of times. So I want to thank Josh for coming on. Also, just give you a reminder, if you're signing up for the Christmas card swap, make sure you reach out to me personally. You can DM me on Discord. Um, you can ask somebody that you know that knows somebody, knows something about something, and maybe they can get in touch with me. But uh, I'll get all of that information over to Chad so he can post an article on Land of Redemption like we've done the last few years. And we'll get all of that squared away. If you want to sign up, make sure you do that. And... It'll have all the rules listed there. Make sure that you can follow those rules and you're willing to do that so that we don't have any issues on the back end. Uh, but it's pretty simple and straightforward. We've done it for two years now, and I don't think there's been any serious issues or whatnot. People seem to enjoy it, so we're going to keep it going this year. And we'll catch you on the next episode, whenever that may be. Peace.